The reading for today is taken from 1 Corinthians, one of the letters Paul sent to the new, growing Christian community in Corinth. Corinth was a bustling metropolis full of different cultures, religions, types of people. It was a trading city in the Roman Empire who, much like our city of Chicago, owed its prosperity to its geographical location. Paul sent this letter after being asked how this new community should handle various parts of daily life as Christians. In this reading, you'll hear advice, maybe a little bit of scolding. It's part of the epistles of Paul, a collection of letters that were sent and then cherished by the various young communities popping up in the early church. They were eventually collected, redacted, and even added to whole cloth. Yes, you heard me right, added to, but that's a story for later. A reading from 1 Corinthians 11, 3 to 9, 17 to 22, and 33 to 34. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. Any man who prays or prophesies with something on his head shames his head. But any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled shames her head. It is one and the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman will not veil herself, then she should cut off her hair. But if it is shameful for a woman to have her hair cut off or to be shaved, she should wear a veil. For a man ought not to have his head veiled, since he is the image and reflection of God, but woman is the reflection of man. Indeed, man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither man was created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. Now, in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. Indeed, there have to be factions among you, for only so will it become clear who among you are genuine. When you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper. For when the time comes to eat, each of you proceeds to eat your own supper, and one goes hungry, and another one becomes drunk. What? Do you not have households to eat in and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If you are hungry, eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for your condemnation. About the other things, I will give instructions when I come. 
hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorified in your sight. O God, for you are my rock and you are my redeemer. Amen. Paul, Saul of Tarsus, Paul the Apostle, Saint Paul, Saul who was called Paul. As a modern woman with egalitarian leanings, an overhoned sense of justice, and maybe a bit of a temper, I'll admit, Paul is not my favorite person. Paul has a whole lot of baggage, to put it lightly. After all, it was various interpretations of his letters that were used to systematically push women out of leadership roles as the Christian faith was first taking form. Yes, you'll note that I'm implying that they held leadership positions in the early church in the first place to then be pushed out of. Some of the most frustrating bits of traditional Christian dogma can be traced to interpretations stemming from his letters. Hurtful teaching on sexuality, Paul. Misogynistic ideas about who should hold power in both society and the church, Paul. Biblical defense of slavery, Paul. But I digress. I don't know what I expected when I first started learning about Paul this last semester in seminary. It was, after all, a required course, and the alternatives just didn't fit with any sort of graduation plan that would get me out of here before this century. I figured I would need to bite my tongue way more than I ever had before. Maybe I should think about this as an opportunity to learn about the enemy. After all, it's wise to understand your opponent, isn't it? The class was already annoying me because every time the professor said Paul on Zoom or on lecture videos, I'd actually physically start because I thought she was calling on me, Paul, Paula. And I'd get that brief shot of adrenaline that always happens when your teacher or boss or parent calls on you unexpectedly and you aren't expecting it. Paul and Paula, it drove me absolutely insane. I certainly didn't expect to learn that out of the 14 epistles attributed to Paul and canonized, only seven are completely agreed upon by scholars to have been written by him. Galatians, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Philemon, Philippians, and 1 Thessalonians. Ugh, that's a tongue twister, isn't it? As it is, 2 Corinthians is believed by some to be some sort of Franken epistle that someone somewhere cut and pasted and kind of made into one long document out of random fragments they found that they believed were Paul's. Three of the 14, 2 Thessalonians, Colossians, and Ephesians, are hotly debated by scholars. About half think they're authentic, the other half doesn't. The last four, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, and Hebrews, are flat out believed to be written by someone else, by most modern scholarship. It's interesting to note that most of the most misogynistic bits and pieces of Paul are found in those epistles. Paul felt that he'd been called to take on what is often called the Jesus movement to the Gentiles. He did so with these letters and visits to locations all over the ancient Roman world. And he was successful. He made what had been a small, quirky, separatist movement in Judaism understandable to a whole new group of people. I'd argue that we wouldn't be here in the form that we're in if it hadn't been for Paul. This was proto-Christianity, 
The Christianity that we know today has its roots a few hundred years later based on people interpreting Paul. So why does all this matter, you're asking? Why have I spent the last few minutes going down this rabbit hole of biblical and historical minutiae and quite possibly boring, it, boring you with it in this beautiful Sunday morning? Because, as they say, context is king. Context is everything. When you understand the world that these sacred texts were written in, that Jesus lived in, when you understand the people these texts were written for, it frees you to understand what is actually being said. What parts of the divine were possibly speaking through these very human writers of this text? With all their human frailties and biases, all the way back somewhere in the year 50. It's context that helps us understand why, in this reading, Paul seems to get it so wrong at the start, and then get it so right. Here's what I mean. The first part of this passage is actually believed by some to be an interpolation, which is a fancy word for something stuck in the middle of something else which may or may not be related. Sometimes, it's not even nefarious. A monk somewhere makes a note in the margin, what was obviously meant here was this. With all the bias and human frailties that come from any interpretation of, well, anything. As all books, included scripture, were hand-copied until the invention of the printing press somewhere around the 1400s. Someone, somewhere, decided that the little scribble in the margins is actually part of the text. Then they add it in while they're copying it. And boom, it's now an official part of scripture. It's actually pretty telling that someone, somewhere, decided that they had to try and force the vibrant and challenging early church into their traditional box. A church that was started with churches, home churches, founded by women that welcomed slaves, the underclass. This means that as far as the divine message goes, we can possibly put that part of a passage aside or at least understand it as a different person's vision. Or we can read it with a healthy dose of skepticism. So if we kind of put that problematic part to the side, what are we left with? We're left with a man that felt like he understood what Jesus was trying to do with communion and was trying to explain it with a bunch of people that didn't understand it at all. We're left with a man that understood that a community isn't truly a community when people are left behind. When those that have show off what they have in front of those that have not. And in a very practical way, tells those that have to, well, not to flaunt it. Excuse me, that those that have it, not to flaunt it. It's far closer to what I believe Christ's message in the gospel actually is. That we are all equal in front of God. That communion is a meal, yes. But it's not one where you come to be filled physically, but spiritually. I actually like this, Paul. It's a pretty decent message, isn't it? So, okay, time to get down to brass tacks. What does this mean? 
Why has Paula been up here babbling about random biblical stuff all morning? I suppose if you take one thing away from my sermon today, it's this, that our scriptures as we know it is not purely divine and not purely human. It's some crazy mixture of both. As one of my favorite professors, Dr. Rabbi Rachel Mikva, likes to remind me, scripture is humanity's attempt to understand and even commune with the divine. It's a beautiful attempt. That Paul does have some worthwhile stuff once you understand where he's coming from and perhaps what was written by someone else down the line to fit better with the status quo. That perhaps the early church is just as radical, freeing, and groundbreaking for its time as Jesus was. That maybe we need to live into that tradition a little more and remember it. Remember that comment about women in the early church? Ask me about Phoebe sometime. The early church could not have been nearly as successful without women like Phoebe. That perhaps a surface level reading of scripture leaves us with a surface level faith. Yeah, can you tell that this semester was maybe just a bit transformative when it comes time to how I relate to scripture? So this Memorial Day weekend, as we take time to welcome the summer and memorialize our dead, I challenge you to maybe take a few minutes to reread a favorite passage, go to that one Bible website that lets you browse through all the different translations and compare and contrast what all the translators did with the Greek and Hebrew text. Yes, I can attest that translation is in fact its own fraught animal, that one ending or lack of an accent on one two-letter word can completely change the meaning of a phrase. I pulled an all-nighter writing an entire 15-page research paper on how that completely changed like three phrases this year. Ask my parents over there. I took over their guest room with my books and journal articles. I challenge you to maybe dig up that one Bible from ages ago that has more notes than biblical text and really read and consider those notes. It's okay that it'll take you multiple Google searches to understand everything. That's sort of the point. I want you to think about how all that context changes what you thought you knew all along. It's crazy what taking a second look at a millennia-old text that you thought you knew can teach you, isn't it? Amen. <laughs>